Uh, we come, friends, to the closing service of this communion season with the Thanksgiving meeting tonight. If you would turn with me to Romans 8, and we'll take as our text the words of verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So on. So far we have tried to cover four questions. Where have your sins gone? How have your sins gone? What did your sins cost? And then last night, are your sins pardoned? Tonight, our fifth and final question is, when will your sins stop? When will your sins stop? I want to ask this question because, well, sorry for myself, it's often a sort of anxiety and a nervousness begins as we get towards the Monday of our communion. We know that we've been sheltered for a few days, as it were, in the storm. We know that we've been taken aside by the Saviour himself. We've been, if you like, cocooned in his grace and love and his mercy. We've had fellowship. There's been prayer more intense, perhaps, than would ordinarily be our position over the last few days. But also others have been praying for us who know that this is the Inverness Commune Weekend in your own presbytery and beyond. There's been concentrated prayer directed towards our meetings, pleading for the Lord's blessings. And we're thankful for that and we're conscious of that. Yet we come to the point now we go, well, that's nearly over. And we're about to return to normality, I suppose, whatever that might be for you in your own circumstance and your own routine, your own career, your own workplace, your own family life, your own shift patterns, your own habits of life, these daily events that mark the passage of your own days on earth. And that thought of going back to it all in some ways can be what makes us uneasy. Uneasy sometimes because we can be afraid of what comes next. And whether we will indeed, having done all to stand, will we stand? There can be a fear, I suppose, that all that resolve, sitting under the enthusiasm of a communion season, all that intent and purpose of heart to walk more faithfully to keep away from sin more consistently, to hold on to the blessings of a communion season as we go on. It can sometimes feel like even by the Monday, as if it's all sort of coming crashing down or we're afraid it might. Sometimes by the Monday we feel like it's a, it's a dream that is fading. The mercies of the day are like the last light that is fading behind you. And these things are receding from our grasp and from our memories. And of course, as well as that, we fear what comes in its place. What comes rushing in like a flood 
sin and temptation, trials and worldliness. And we may be a bit like Lot in Sodom and vexing our righteous souls over these things. And so it is for the encouragement, therefore, of all our souls together. This evening I want to try and answer this question. When will your sins stop? And we have four points to try to work through, so we'll move on without further delay. When will your sins stop? First of all, when they cease to be imputed to you. We've talked about imputation before, and we'll try to pick up a bit on that thread now. When they cease to be imputed to you, because our text here tells us that there is now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. And that's a very well-known text. It's a wonderful text. It's It's a beloved text of the Lord's people. But as with all familiar things, sometimes we can fail to notice the details and appreciate them. And the word I would like to highlight amongst all the wonderful words of that opening verse is the word now. There is now no condemnation. And that's a very useful word to find. If you've got a question when, if you've got a when question of any kind, and you find the answer as a now, well, you're well underway to understanding how to answer the question. When now? When will your sins cease? In one way, we can answer that by saying, They already have. They have ceased to be imputed to you. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. That's not the same as saying, we wish it were already, but it's not yet, you stopped sinning. You don't sin and you won't sin. Rather, we have to say, You still sin and you still fail and I with you. And no communion season is going to change that in this world. Even after a communion season we are not exempt from temptation nor falling into sin. But the Bible does tell us here that there is no condemnation for you. So it's not denying that you're a sinner but it says there's no condemnation for you. And you have to say why not? Surely it would make sense to say or to believe, well, when you sin, that sin must surely condemn me. Often our heart feels like that's the case. Conscience grips and squeezes and convicts us. But the Bible reminds us God is greater than our heart when our heart condemns us. And So this is a wonderful thing to always remember as we go forward. Being a Christian is not that at the point at which you come to Christ and repent of your sins, well, all your past sins up to that point are forgiven. And then, well, you'll get given grace to try to keep you from sins in the future. No. Jesus saves us from all of our sins. All our sins, even the ones we haven't committed yet. All of them 
are imputed. All of them that is, are counted as placed upon Christ's head as our scapegoat. All of them. And when there is no sin, therefore, to impute against us because it's been imputed upon him, well, how can there be a verdict of condemnation against us? No charge has been laid against us. He's taken them all. There can be no verdict of condemnation against a Christian. We are acquitted. And we are still acquitted. We remain free in Christ. We remain covered under the shelter of his wings. Under whom wings we have come to trust like Ruth. We are in Christ Jesus. There is not and cannot be any condemnation to us in him now it's already true it's not that the christian says well when i get to the last day there will be no condemnation against me then that's true of itself but it's even true now sometimes we forget how many blessings we have now think of the the benediction that we usually close our services with even The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all, both now and forever. It's not just a future blessing we're pronouncing. It's an already blessing. Now. So, many of what we, so much of what we have in Christ is already real and true. In fact, the Christian already possesses the greatest portion of his inheritance. He has Christ himself. He has a pardon of his sins. He has a justification that will never be taken away. He has an adoption that has already happened. He has a spirit. Now. Now, at the same time, we have to say, this is only the first part, of, but the first point in our sermon, so it's only part of the answer. We have not yet actually ceased to sin. There is now no condemnation, certainly, but that's not the same as saying there is now no sin. But these sins that we do have have ceased to be added to our account because they're already part of all that was imputed to Christ on our behalf. Sometimes we tend to sort of think it's almost a bit like a conveyor belt. And each new sin comes along, returns us to a state of condemnation. And then we have to go and, sort of as it were, deliver that sin up and take it and roll it over onto Christ. And then we have returned to a state of being declared innocent and righteous. It's not that way. That's not what this text tells us. And the... As the chapter opens, so the chapter ends, the end of the text of the chapter makes the same point. Verse 38. For well, I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of Christ, which is in love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing else can break us away nothing else can drive a wedge between the christian and the love of god because there is no condemnation to us now in christ so then already right now and onwards our sins are not imputed to us anymore because they've already been counted 
They were found upon the head of our substitute, and he has paid for them all. That's part of the answer, we might say. Our question is, when will our sins stop? The second part of the answer, and our second point is, when they cease to have power over you. Because our text goes on. Not only is there no condemnation for us now, but it says we walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. And verse 2 completes the line. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Not only have our sins stopped having the legal right to condemn us, they have also already lost the authority to rule us. There is no condemnation. They have no right to condemn us. But that's not all that's happened. Our sins have lost the authority to rule. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. And that's a, probably a, a difficult thing maybe to to accept that sin has lost the, the power to rule in your life. Because you say, oh, but if you knew my heart, you wouldn't be saying that. You don't know my heart. You don't know the power that I feel sin has. You don't know the struggle that I have with sin every day. It's such a battle. At times it is so strong and so often I am so weak. Well, listen, friend, to the word. Because whatever the Bible says, we know that's got to be true. Whether we feel it's true or not, it is going to be true. It's not going to be wrong. The word can't be broken. And it says that we are free from the law of sin and death. We are free from it already now. What that means is that we are released from the jurisdiction of it. We once lived under the domain of sin and death. And they had control over us. They held the chains of our heart. We were in bondage. We were slaves to sin. But that slave holding is over. We are now bought with a price. We are redeemed. And the old master that once was our master has no authority over us anymore. It has ceased to own us. We are no more the property of sin. We are now the property of Christ. We are not our own. We are bought with a price. No, it was a dearly bought price, the price of his blood. But that which he has bought with the price of his blood, he is not going to relinquish. We are his. We are his now. And so sin does not have the authority or the rights over us that it once had. Now that takes time to realize as we, as we go on just how free our freedom is, how at liberty our liberty gives us. 
The old habits and practices and experiences and wounds and scars of sin are still real in the Christian's life. And we don't want to minimize that at all. Far from it. They are very real and very strong at times. It's not to say we don't commit sins. We do. But it's saying sin no longer reigns over us. And it's not by any means original. But I once heard what I felt was a very good illustration of this. And so I'll offer it to you. An African slave had been held for many years in a plantation in the southern, one of the southern states of America. And after many years of cruel subjugation there, he eventually escaped. And there were, there were different uh, underground networks by which fleeing slaves could make their way to the free states in the north. And he made it all the way to New York, this man. And he had settled there for some time. And he was walking through the streets of New York one day when he heard to the shudder of his soul an all too familiar voice. It was the voice of his old master. He knew it even before he turned round to see him. And the master was walking on the other side of the street and he also recognized his runaway slave. And he called out to the runaway slave and he said, Boy, come here. Just the way he used to do. And the first instinct of the man, his instant response, was to droop his shoulders and bow his head, and he started to walk across the street. But before he took a second step, he came to himself. He said, what am I doing? He's got no rights here. He's not my master anymore. He doesn't own me now. I am not his to command. I am free from his tyranny and cruelty. And he stopped and he turned on his heels and he walked away from the open-mouthed and red-faced enraged slaver. And he was never under his power. The law of liberty had made him free from the old laws of the South. And that is just exactly our position with sin. Because sometimes it tries to entrap us. Sometimes it tries to assume the old swagger and deceive us. Tries to make us just forget. Actually, it's been unseated. Actually, it doesn't have that power over me anymore. Actually, I don't have to do what it's calling me to do. Well, I'm escaped from that bondage. And sometimes it will even seem to succeed to an extent and we will sin. Succumbing to old habits of life, we realize, what have I done? We can lose sight of the liberties that we have in Christ. But even if we lose sight of the liberties we have in Christ, if the worst happens is where we do not then become enslaved again. We are remain free. We are not sins, plaything anymore. We are Christ's. We are holy because we are his. Not because there's any great holiness of ourselves, but we belong to him. We are Christ's possessions. We are his jewels. Sin has no more rights over your soul. No longer does sin sit as Lord of your life. Jesus sits there on his throne. He is your master. And we bless God for that wonderful transfer of ownership and power, that liberation 
that has taken place in our lives from the bondage of sin, that redemption price paid by the Savior for us to redeem us from the law. The law had us. We had broken the law. We were therefore condemned by the law. We were cursed by the law. The law even had right on its side. The law could say, ah, they're wicked. They're condemned. I demand their destruction. And the law had the right to do that. We were guilty. But when Christ came and kept the law for us, and when he went on to pay the price of our punishment as well, not just keeping the law and providing the righteousness, but also providing an atonement. The law had nothing else to say. The law had to shut its mouth and let us walk free. The jailhouse doors flew open and out we walked free in Christ Jesus. Sin, you see, friend, in your life, it's on the way out. It's a tide that's on the way out and it'll never come back in. It has no more power. First of all, there's no more imputed to you anymore. Wonderful. But it also has no more authority over you either. I ask you then, when will our sins stop? And our third answer to that question is when they cease by sanctification. Sanctification is that process whereby the Christian is made holy. Doesn't happen all at once, it's not an act, it's a what? It takes time, bit by bit. And it is completed at the point of death, but not before. Think then about life before grace in your life. Think of what that was like. Think about life under the slavery of the law. What was life like under the law? The law can tell you right from wrong. The law could and did command us to keep the statutes. statutes. But it couldn't offer us any way to do that. It could tell us what to do, but it could not enable us to do it. The law was suitable as a way of life for a man who was perfect. The way Adam was created perfect and Eve was created perfect. It was fine for them to have this as a law of life in their, in, their, in their experience. But the law was hopeless and useless as a way of life for sinners. It was powerless to save. And furious to condemn. And that's what Paul says in verse 3. He's talking about what the law could not do couldn't save us couldn't make us any better couldn't help us out of our sin it could only terrify us for our sins and damn us for our guilt for what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh God sending his own son the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh why was the law so unable to help you and me? When it could tell us what was right from wrong. It was God's law after all. It was good. The law was good and just and holy, Paul says. 
But the law had to depend upon us to obey it. And we couldn't obey it. Our nature is now fallen, broken and sinful. That's the weakness under the law. That's the flaw of the law. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, through our flesh. But that very point that is the flaw of the law is also the entrance of grace. What the law could not do, God did by sending his Son in grace. What was the effect of God sending his Son? Verse 4, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. You see there is now power for us to help us. By walking after the spirit. Walking in holiness of life. We can and do Christian. And do begin the process of ceasing from sin. We begin the process of leaving sin behind. It is the Spirit in us who enables us. It is all of grace. But it is real. The law couldn't do anything. The law was utterly paralyzed in the face of your sinfulness. It needed to be grace. The law had no answer for us. All the law had for us was fear and sure hell friends that's all the law had for us but the provision of grace the solution of grace is to help us to defeat sin bit by bit day by day fighting against this indwelling sin and corruption through the spirit in our lives do you see the steady unpicking of the power of sin in the believer It can't be imputed to you anymore. It's lost its authority over you. And it is even slowly losing its place in your habits and in your thoughts, your words and your deeds. There's an invasion of grace happening that is expelling the corruption of your nature. From being, if you use a different illustration, from being once the sheriff, if you like, Running the town of your heart. Sin is now the outlaw. Running still about in the streets. But scurrying in the shadows. Trying to avoid the new sheriff in town. The law of grace. And the spirit of Christ. It's still causing trouble. It's vandalizing. It's causing running amok in the heart still. But it's a scotched earth policy of a defeated retreating army. It's on the way out. And bit by bit, every sin in your heart will be caught by grace and dealt with. Grace is expelling sin from every part of your life. Every part. Grace is taking over. 
Grace is rebuilding your life. Grace is purging sin from your desires and your affections. That's one part of your life, things you desire. Grace is at work there. It is changing your desires. It is pushing out the old desires. If some is fight to come back in again, but the direction is outward. Out they must go. Out with eleven. Grace is pushing sin out of your will. So that you are more and more inclined by God's mercy to the things that he desires. And your will is becoming more and more aligned with the will of God. Grace is undoing the confusion of sin from your understanding. So that you are beginning to see light in the scriptures. And you're beginning to see the beauty of the plan of salvation. And the overarching purpose of God's decree and providence. And the outworking of all things for good. You begin to recognize why there are things happening in this world. Because you're looking to the coming of Christ at the end. And it all begins to fit in place. You've maybe just got a, a few points if you like. You know the way the children would join the dots. But you've got a few points, a few dots now, and you're beginning to see a little bit of the picture. Not the detail yet, but you're beginning to see it. Because why? Because sin has been pushed out of your understanding. And light is coming in, and grace is coming in to your understanding. Grace is also reconnecting the conscience with the law and standards of God, not the imagined morality of men. It's like plugging it back into its real power source. Conscience is a wonderful thing, but oh, when it is pulled out of the plug of who God is and what God desires, it's broken. But you put it back in. You reconnect it by grace. And conscience takes on again this wonderful impact of grace in the life. And conscience, therefore, too, is expressing in your soul, the standards and the will of God. See how sin is getting to the peripheries. It's, it's, it's clinging on at the edges sometimes. And we are mortifying the deeds of the flesh. So that's what it says in verse 13. Every time we refuse to sin, every time we take up the armour of God to try to stand against sin by his grace. What's happening? The righteousness of the law is being fulfilled in us, verse 4. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. That righteousness of the law that we could never attain to by the law. That was the exact opposite of what we had in our lives, that we were condemned by the righteous requirements of the law, but now the righteousness of the law has been fulfilled in us by walking after the Spirit. That's not a works righteousness, of course, not at all. It's a righteousness of grace by the power of Jesus and his cross. Therefore, do not despair, Christian. You know, if you put one flame of grace in a Pacific Ocean of sin, it will dry up the ocean eventually. Christ is Lord of your life. And he has all the resources that are required to enable you to progress in your sanctification. So sin is on the retreat. It is still sin. It is still dangerous. It is still strong. 
it is still vile, it is still shameful, and it's still deceitful. Remember, it still pretends that it is actually enthroned. It still goes around with its fake cloak and crown. It tries to suggest it as all the old vigour, but it doesn't. It tries to assume to itself the old liberties with the right to do, command you to do this and that and the next thing, but it hasn't got them. It's hoping you'll forget that it's dethroned. It's yesterday's first minister. It's out and it's gone and it'll soon be forgotten. It cannot be imputed to you. It has had to rescind all its claims over you. And it is slowly being expunged from your life through the relentless process of grace and sanctification. That just leaves us one final point in this question. When will your sin stop? The answer is perhaps the final and ultimate answer. When they cease by glorification. Listen to how this beautiful chapter before us develops. Verse 18, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And then verses 20, uh, 29 and 20 and 30, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestine it, to be conformed to the image of his Son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. See, having started with the assertion of us being under no condemnation anymore, now, but when you start with that assertion, it is always only a matter of time before the apostle is going to end up with a a discussion upon our glorification. We are predestined, we are told here. In verse 29, what are we predestined to be? To be conformed to the image of his Son. And if you are conformed to the image of his Son, there is no sin in you. It is gone. You cannot be fully conformed to the image of Christ And sin still be in you. One day sin will absolutely cease. Where there's any space in the soul for sin when you're conformed to Christ. The golden chain of that verse 29 and 30 starts from eternity past. In predestination. In foreknowing a people. And it ends in the certain glorification of these same exact people. And when that happens, when that day of our glorification comes, all sin will be forever removed. The final outlaws that have been scurrying around the streets in the darkness and the shadows will be arrested. The last bits of damage that was done by the vandal of sin in the heart will be repaired, renewed, restored and made better than ever. There will be no sin in us one day. It will finally, fully and forever have ceased. It will be gone. 
And friends, that is a wonderful thing to imagine and ponder. And at times when I try to anticipate the day when there will be no more sin in my life, and it's very hard to really imagine what that's like. What will it be like to have the first breath of heaven's air and be sinless? You know, the astronauts who went to the moon, they, in that amazing flight, experienced weightlessness. And I'm sure they never forgot what that first weightlessness felt like. But it is nothing compared to the first breath of sinlessness. The first thought that you have and you think, hang on, there's no sin in that thought. The first words that you say and everything about them is pure and good and pleasing to God. The first act that you do that bears no touch of ungodliness about it. It has nothing on your hands that's filthy about it. Friends, what will that be like? If we come back to our slave for a moment, it will be freedom. That's what it will be. Sin is slavery. It is bondage. And there comes a day when our liberties will be gloriously, abundantly, completely given over to us with no reservations whatsoever. And we will be free. And what weightlessness will it be like, if you like, to be free of the burden and the weight of sin? To float in sinless perfection. What liberty will it be to praise Christ with only holy thoughts. And to serve him with only godly desires. And to love him with only a perfect love. And to see him as he is with perfect vision. Your sin is not yet all gone. But it is going. It is absolutely going. It is not yet all dead. But it is dying. And it is not going to get a second life. It is not going to get a resurrection. It is dying. It cannot touch you in your standing with your Savior. It is not imputed to you when even you sin. It cannot rule over you by the commands of a broken law. It is dethroned from your heart and has had to give up its claims in favor of Christ's claim over you. It cannot, un, uh, it cannot settle into your soul again and take possession of the castle of your heart. It is hunted. It is haunted by the relentless process of the work of the Spirit sanctifying you. It cannot mount a comeback. It will one day be all gone. And you will be in heaven. And it's not only that sin can't even get to you. Sin can't even get in the door of heaven. It can't get through the gates of heaven. It can't be in anyone else in heaven. And you will never sin again. What a salvation we have. What a saviour we have. And what a gospel this is. And so the chapter ends. What shall we then say to these things if God be for us? 
can be against us. May God bless his word. Let us pray. Oh, we thank thee, Lord, for these things. We thank thee for the promises of them. We we struggle, O oh Lord, still with sin that remains, the corruption that remains, and we have oftentimes given it more place than it has any right to in our lives. But we thank thee for the reminders of Scripture, who is really in control, and that sin is truly dying. And unbelief, as surely as unbelief, unbelief died in the wilderness. And that is, take thy people out of Egypt, so all unbelief and all sin associated with it will die in this journey until we are taken into the promised land. Deliver us then, we pray thee, from all our unrighteousnesses. And make us acceptable in the Beloved, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we close, friends, uh, our worship singing to his praise in Psalm 133. Psalm 133, a song of degrees of David. Behold how good a thing it is, and how becoming well. Together such as brethren are in unity to dwell, like precious ointment on the head that down the beard did flow, even Aaron's beard, and to the skirts that of his garments go, as Hermon's Jew the Jew that doth on Zion hills descend, or there the blessing God commands life that shall never end. Psalm 133. <laughs> Behold
intimations. A prayer meeting uh, on Thursday is at the usual time of 7.30. I'll be conducted by Mr. Derek Gillis, the elder. The Doors Communion Services uh, on Friday, 31st March at 7.30, on Saturday at 11, on Sabbath at 11 and 6.30, all will be taken by Reverend Aaron Lewis of Cross Lanes Chapel Reformed Church in Hampshire. And Monday, 3rd April, 7.30, taken by Reverend John McPherson in Verness. Uh, the service here next Thursday, I assume, at the usual times. And then we come then to the end of our communion season and we do indeed give thanks to the Lord above all for all his mercies to us. His grace, his goodness, his constancy and his faithfulness. And we praise him from the bottom of our hearts. We thankful to the Lord's people who have gathered uh, throughout these services, both of the congregation and those who have been visiting with you. It's been lovely to see folk from different places gathering to praise the Lord and trust has been indeed for our, the good of our never-dying souls. He's in at all the intimations and subject to God's will. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Ghost rest on and abide with you all, now and forever. Amen. Amen.